We're in the middle of a series on the, uh, the idea, the doctrine, the concept of justification by faith alone. And um, as we look at that uh, and think about it a little bit further this morning, let me pray for us. Help me to preach, Lord, that my preaching might be inhabited by your spirit so that Christ might be presented to us all and that in seeing him we may be lost in wonder, love, and praise, that in seeing him we might be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We pray these things that the Lamb might have the rewards of his suffering. Amen. Well, um, last Sunday, as we were worshiping, 26 people were killed in the largest massacre that's happened in Texas's history. It was a, a gunman who walked into a church and opened fire, 26 people, one of whom was not yet born. As I listened to stories and reports, um, they said that it all started with domestic disputes at home in the shooter's family. And that really shouldn't surprise us. It's been that way from the beginning, that tensions and problems and divisions in the family spill out all over society in 10,000 ways in 10,000 socio-political places. It's been that way since the beginning. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Leah and Rachel, Joseph and Judah. Tensions in the family that spill out into the human family. But these divisions that mark our society, racial tensions, class wars, turf wars, socioeconomic divisions, they, they don't just play out in the nuclear family or in the human family. They actually, sadly, play out in God's family, in the church. But we're starting, we've, uh, we started this series, and the reason that we started doing this series on justification by faith alone is to mark the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. And we wanted to talk about one of the most, I think, generative and captivating and uh, potentially um, transformative ideas in the Reformation, justification by faith alone. But we can't mark the Reformation and, and note its great successes with also without noting its great failures and what was brought about. Division in the church. Divisions that have played out over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus was a man of prayer. And in... The longest prayer that's recorded in the Gospels, John 17, 
Jesus prayed in that prayer, the, the centerpiece of the prayer, he prayed that his people, his church, might be one. That they might be one as Jesus is and the Father are one. Now, if that doesn't give you uh, a sense of how important unity is, think about why he prayed that prayer. He says that they might be one, that the world might know that the Father sent the Son. In other words, disunity and our disunity, it affects the integrity of our witness. Our witness. And that's actually our whole identity. That's who we are. You are my witnesses. So, so that means that our disunity as a church, it actually, it actually affects the integrity of us being the church. That's something. And I'm not just blaming Protestants. Before the Protestant Reformation, there was the Great Schism. And even within Eastern and Roman Catholic traditions, there are still divisions. There are Vatican II Roman Catholics. There are Tridentine Mass Roman Catholics. There are Charismatic Catholics. And then there are all the various orders. So it's not just Protestants, but we have to be honest that... The Protestant Reformation brought about a particular proliferation of divisions. Because at least in those other communions, the sense is that, that you still need to stay institutionally and ecclesiastically bound to one another, right? But Protestants will start a new church or, a new, um, or break off and they just because they feel like it's a movement. And in the early church, that wasn't called a movement. It was called a heretic. When he said, well, we're starting a move. God's doing something across the street. So we're going to split because we like to do things differently. Divisions have played, plagued us. From the first century till now, it's been that way since the beginning. Perhaps the earliest, most pointed divisions in the early church were between Jews and non-Jews, what the Bible calls Gentiles. And Jews and non-Jews, they did not get along. They had different cultural norms, they had different values, they had different ways of life. And that caused huge tensions amongst these groups. Tensions that the Bible spills lots of ink over in addressing. And these tensions, they played out especially over meals. What do we do with our divisions? What did the Apostle Paul do with the divisions in his churches? Well, actually, the Apostle Paul believed that justification by faith was the solution to divisions in the church. Look at Romans chapter 3 verses 28 through 30 with me. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised, that is Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that is Gentile, through faith. See, when Paul actually addresses 
divisions within the church, he addresses it with the doctrine of justification by faith. In other words, for Paul, the logical outcome of the doctrine of justification by faith is unity in the people of God. How so? How does the doctrine of justification by faith bring unity? Well, to do that, I need to actually review the doctrine a little bit. Look again at verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's really the doctrine of justification by faith alone in a nutshell. To be justified is to be deemed in the right. To be deemed right with respect to a standard. And what justification by faith assumes is that we cannot be deemed right before God according to any standard. That there is no standard that we can keep that would make us right before God. That, that our modern standards that, uh, that we have, that they don't make us right before God. Uh, that the law, uh, even that standard, does not make us right before God. Because justification by faith assumes... Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Justification by faith assumes, Romans 3.20, that by works of the law, no human being will be justified. Justification by faith assumes that we have no capital, no symbolic capital, moral, social, or otherwise, that we can bring before God that makes us more acceptable before Him. Rather, what makes us acceptable before God is Jesus and Jesus alone. Who he is, what he has done. And so we trust him. And this idea has tremendous implications for the family of God and for how different groups relate within the family of God. Look at verses 29 and 30 again. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In other words, the question is, has God limited himself to a certain group of people? Has he limited himself to Jews only? Uh, we might ask it has he limited himself um, to those who live up to Jewish standards of worth? We might ask it like this. Is God the God of middle class only? Is God the God of the educated only? Is God the God of Westerners only? Is God the God of Americans only? Is God the God of the young only or the old only? Is God the God of traditionalists only or conservatives only? That's the way that we might ask it. The question is, what defines the scope of the family of God? Is it Jesus alone or Jesus plus? Jesus plus Jewish values and Jewish cultures and Jewish customs. That's the question. See, when we, when we apply the doctrine of justification by faith alone, usually we apply it to our sense of pride. And that's certainly appropriate. We apply it to our insecurity and sense of assurance, and that's certainly appropriate. But when Paul applies the doctrine of justification by faith alone, the primary place he applies it to is to unity within the family of God. 
Look in chapter 4. He is at pains to point out that members of the family of God, that what marks them out is that they are justified by faith. That what characterizes them is that they are justified by faith. He starts with Abraham, the forefather. The forefather of God's family. Look at verse 3. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified by faith. And this justification happened before circumcision. Chapter 4 verse 10. And this had a purpose. The purpose was to make him the father, not simply of Jews, but of Gentiles also. You see, Abraham was justified while he was a Gentile. That's Paul's point. So verse 14, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised. Or again in verse 16, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. And who are they? Not only those who adhere to the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is father of us all, Jews and Gentiles alike. Paul's at pains to point out here that the characteristic trait of Abraham's family and members of Abraham's family, which Paul believes is the family of God, is that they have been justified by faith. So is God the God of Jews only? No. No, because Gentiles are also justified by believing in Jesus. Do they not believe in Jesus? Is God the God of middle class only? No, because rich and poor also believe in Jesus, and therefore they are justified by faith and faith alone. Is God the God of the educated only? No, absolutely not. But because people who are not educated or people who are overeducated, they believe in Jesus and are justified by that alone. Well, what about... What about Americans? Is God the God of Americans only? Certainly not. Because people all around the world believe in Jesus and are justified by that alone. What about Presbyterians? Is God the God of Presbyterians only? Well, I don't know. You tell me. Do Baptists believe in Jesus? Then they are justified by Jesus as well. What about Methodists? Do they believe in Jesus? What about non-denominational and independents? Do they believe in Jesus? Then they are justified by faith alone. What about Episcopalians? Do they believe in Jesus? Then they are justified by faith alone. What about Roman Catholics? Do they believe in Jesus? You say, well, Kyle, I mean, come on, Roman Catholics, they, they actually deny the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That's right. But let me ask you a question. Does verse 28 say that someone is justified by believing the doctrine of justification by faith alone? Or does it say that a person is justified by faith alone? Let me ask a question. Does chapter 4 verse 3 say that Abraham believed in justification by faith alone and it was credited to him as righteousness? Or does it say that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness? You see... You are not justified by believing in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That would be against the doctrine of justification by faith alone. (laughs) Your doctrine does not make you more qualified before God. Trusting in Jesus, in Jesus alone does. And that means, that means, 
if the sole basis for acceptance with God is Jesus and Jesus alone and our trusting him, then the sole basis for our relating to one another needs to be Jesus and Jesus alone. We cannot divide from other Christians. We cannot divide from other Christians who believe in Jesus because of our differences. However real and important those differences are, we must seek unity with them. And the doctrine of justification by faith is the ecumenical doctrine, which is ironic that after the Protestant Reformation, we started dividing. You see? We cannot divide. We cannot divide with other Christians. We cannot divide denominationally. We also can't divide in socioeconomic and racial ways. I want you to turn to Galatians 2. Turn to Galatians 2. We're going to take some time going there. I want you to turn to Galatians 2 because Galatians 2 is the first place where Paul develops the doctrine of justification by faith. It's the first place where he articulates it. And here's what's going on. Uh, Paul is telling a story in Galatians 2. And here's the story. Um, There was this uh, apostle who was kind of important. His name was Peter. You might have heard of him. Peter was there in Antioch, and he was there with lots of other Christians, Gentile Christians. And he was eating with the Gentile Christians. They were eating at the same table. But then some Jewish Christians came, and Peter got embarrassed. And Peter got up and separated himself from the Gentile Christians and started eating with Jewish Christians. You see, before, he had given up on ritual purity and Jewish customs and things like that. And he had said, those things don't matter anymore because of Jesus. I am going to eat with Gentiles. But then he starts causing division in the church because some people, some other Jews, came from Jerusalem and Peter got embarrassed. And I want you to listen to how Paul responds. Verse 14. But when I saw their conduct, that is, those who stepped away from eating with Gentiles, those who separated themselves, because it wasn't just Peter. Actually, a bunch of other Jews followed Peter, including the pastor of the church, Barnabas. Paul says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas, that's a nickname for Peter, Rocky, in front of the others who was separated from Gentiles, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? How can you force them to follow Jewish customs? For we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, right? We are the righteous Jews, basically. We follow the Jewish customs, yet we know that a person is Justified, deemed acceptable before God. Uh, Not by works of the law, but through the faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in him. Uh, Peter, look, you and I believed in Jesus. Because it's not works of the law that makes us acceptable. In order that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law and not by our Jewish customs. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is saying, look, Peter, when you separate it out, it's actually a betrayal of the gospel. 
It's a denial of the gospel. The gospel of justification by faith alone. Because you are saying to those Gentiles, you have to live like a Jew to be acceptable. You have to live like a Jew to be part of God's family. To be, to be a first class citizen. And this is not in step with the truth of the gospel. You see, they were denying the gospel. Peter was denying the gospel not by preaching heresy. Not in his proclamation, but in his practice. And we can do it as well. It was 1964. Joe Purdy was a black student at Southwest Community College. He walked up to the entrance of Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. And he was denied entrance because of the color of his skin. So he and other students, they tried to come in and then when they were denied entrance, they just kneeled in 1964, on the steps of Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Say, how could that happen? Well, to understand that, I need to back up a bit. To August 20th, 1619, Jamestown, Virginia, when 20 enslaved Africans were let off a boat. They were enslaved... And this slavery was race-based, profit-driven, man-stealing, with no hope of freedom. Don't let anyone ever tell you it was biblical. It was not in any way, shape, or form. But it was justified on the socially constructed grounds that the ethnicity of certain types of people made them inferior and worthy of enslavement. The church began being pro-slavery when slavery made an agrarian economy profitable. After, uh, after Eli Whitney's cotton gin, the problem compounded. No one in pulpits north or south would preach against slavery. But then a problem happened. Slaves started believing the gospel. And white Christians didn't know what to do. So, they constructed this idea. Based on the separation, the distinction between body and soul, they said their souls can be saved, but their bodies are inferior, and that's why they're worthy of enslavement. And while what should have happened is when they came into the church, what should have happened is that they were made full members of the church, not second-class citizens, and that should have eventually led to liberation bodily, what happened is that they continued to be enslaved. We could say that the church was captive to the culture. And that would be true to a certain extent, but not completely. Because there were times in which the church actually was in the driver's seat. 1874, oh, after the Civil War, churches in the South especially had 
enjoyed multi-ethnic fellowship for about nine years. And then in 1874, the Southern Presbyterian Church, which is our denomination's forefathers, they voted to create a policy of organic separation. 20 years before Jim Crow, they created a model for separate but equal that would resemble Plessy versus Ferguson. The church. The Presbyterian church. Throughout the 20th century, churches forbade membership and communion to black people. Until their hearts could not keep silent. And in 1964, Joe Purdy, along with several other African-American college students, walked up to the door of Second Presbyterian Church, and they were denied entrance. Why do I tell this story? I tell this story because it is a very pointed example of how we can confess the doctrine of justification by faith with our lips and deny it with our practice. You see, those forebears, those white Christians, they could articulate the doctrine of justification by faith. They articulated it in systematic theology after systematic theology with crystal clarity and precision. And some of their articulations of it are absolutely beautiful. But with their practice, what they articulated was a doctrine of justification by following white norms. And it was a betrayal of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why I tell that story. And I tell that story because it's my story. You see, a few years later, Second Presbyterian Church voted to let black members in. But there, were member, there was a group of, of Christians in that church that they just couldn't stomach that. So they went and started another church, Independent Presbyterian Church, my former congregation. One of the largest churches in the Presbyterian Church in America. That's my history. But that's not just my history. It didn't just happen at one place. That's our denomination's history. So you need to know that in the Southern Presbyterian Church, amongst those conservatives who were writing in journals, fiercely defending orthodoxy, heroically defending orthodoxy, they were also, in every third or fourth article, tragically defending segregation. The same people. And you ask, how could someone be so tragically flawed on one hand and so get it so right on the other? See, that's all of us. And I'm not trying to whitewash them out of history because if you whitewash them out of history, then you whitewash John Calvin, Martin Luther, the Puritans, Paul, Peter, David, 
all of us. But I do want to be honest and say this, that we cannot, something that I've learned is that, well, you need to know that I love our Reformed and Presbyterian heritage. I love our Reformed and Presbyterian tradition. I love our form of church government. I love, uh, I love the theology that has been produced. In my hands, this is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, it's our denomination's Confession of Faith, and I think it's one of the finest books ever written. I think it's one of the finest pieces of theology ever written, and the more that I read it, the more I come to appreciate it. But I've learned this. I can't actually accept and receive and hold up these parts of the tradition without also being true and honest about the other, the ugly parts of the tradition as well. And there's no way to move forward without actually naming it. That is who we are. And we need to name it because, because it's true. And because people need to hear it. And because we're all susceptible to not living in line with the gospel. So let anyone who take, thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So what are some ways in which we could not live in line with the truth of the gospel today? Well, let's think about race because that's the issue in the text, actually. See, Jews in that day were in the cultural pro, uh, position of power. In the church, they had the dominant culture and the cultural position of power. And, and what happened when, when Peter separates is he said something loud and clear. He said that Gentiles had to follow Jewish customs. He said that Gentiles had to be Jews to be first-class citizens. But of course, he didn't actually say that. Paul said that he said that, but he didn't say that. He didn't have to say that. He just separated from the table. And the Gentiles picked up the point. And I think we can do it the same way when we assume, especially in a white dominant culture, that whiteness and white culture is the standard by which all other cultures and ethnic groups and values and actions ought to be measured. Uh, when we, we assume that others are different, uh, abnormal, uh, less than, because they don't adhere to the norms of dominant culture, of white culture. And, and, it, and it happens in all sorts of ways. But what, it, what the cumulative effect of it is, is that it hap it, the cumulative effect is that persons of color don't feel welcome. If you are, my, to my brothers and sisters in the Lord, who are persons of color, I just want you to know how much I appreciate you. And how much I appreciate you being in this church. And how much joy it brings to me to look around this congregation and see you and sing praises to Jesus with you every week. Because I didn't have that experience growing up. And it is so meaningful to me. I also want you to know that I value you, that we value you, and that we are glad you are here. 
And I also want to thank you for all the patience and fruit of the Spirit that you undoubtedly have to exhibit to exist in our church and other churches like ours. And to my white brothers and sisters, one of the things that we don't realize that our privileges actually blind us to is the ways in which our brothers and sisters of color have to be patient with us in so many ways as we do all kinds of things that we don't even recognize that make them feel marginalized. Like, for instance, if, um, you know, if, if, you are, if you are a white Christian here, you have probably never been asked, where are you from? And then you give an answer and someone says, no, really, where are you from? No, really, where are you from? No, really. Um, it, you have probably never had someone say, wow, I'm, uh, your English is so good. But these kinds of statements build up, intentionally or not, they build up to make someone feel like they don't belong. And we need to be aware. And, and, and we're not aware. So to my brothers and sisters of color, would you tell us, I invite you, I want to take you out to lunch, and I want to hear of what your experiences are so that I can better understand you say, well, Kyle, that's, that's subtle stuff. I mean, is that really discrimination? Is that really that bad? It was subtle stuff in Galatians 2, verses 12 and 13. The only thing that Peter had to do was to get up and to separate, and the only thing the rest had to do was to get up and separate. And they probably just thought they were eating with their friends. But they weren't just eating with their friends. And we need, to be, we need to be aware. Now, uh, I know that some of you are saying, you know, this is, just, uh, this is just kind of politically correct stuff coming into the church. If you are saying that, I want you to know that you should not do this because it's politically correct. And I do not care if you're politically correct. I really don't. But I do care that you're biblically correct. I care that you're gospel correct. And this text is about this issue. And so when you deny that by political correctness, what you're saying is, I'm not going to let the Bible speak into my life. Please do not do that. Please do not let your politics or your ideologies do that. It's convenient. It's wrong. And I can't do it either. We're betraying the gospel of justification by faith alone. Is God the God of the Jews only? No. He's the God of the Gentiles also. Yes, the Gentiles also, since God is one, and he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And so there are no other norms that we can put on people to make them, feel, to make them think that they have to follow those in order to be welcome, accepted in the center of this community. What are some other ways that we do that? It's not just race. Well, I think one is, is the, um, the norm of family life. Right, where we, 
we assume that the normal way of life is that you get married and you have a family. But that makes singles in our congregation feel like they are second class and marginalized. And by the way, I should point out, we should recognize this, um, that Paul thinks singleness is the better way. He really does. There's, I, I don't really think, I'm like, I'm a Paulinist. I wish I could argue against that and say, well, that was just the time and this and that. No, that's like actually what Paul thinks. He believes that. So they're, they're the strong. Those of us who are married are the weak. Uh, it, it happens when we say that uh, American culture is, is the norm, right? I'm so glad that we do not have an American flag in here because it makes people that are from other countries and other citizens feel as if uh, they belong. It, it happens when we assume that college education is the norm and the standard. And so we ask someone, where did you go to college? But of course, when someone didn't go to college, it makes them think, well, should I be here if I didn't go to college? Right? There are all these ways, subtle, that they might be, unintentional that where they might be, where we impose norms on other people and it makes them feel unwelcome. But Paul later in the book of Romans will say, welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed you. And how has God in Christ welcomed you? He did not put any other standard on you besides the standard of Jesus and faith in him. That's what made you acceptable to God. And that's what makes us acceptable to God. See, the people of God are characterized by justification, by faith alone. And that faith is in the miraculous power of God, a power which does not work according to human conventions or standards. And this, I think, gives us the resources to move forward. In chapter 4, verses 17 through 20 of Romans, Paul goes out of his way to show that the people of God, the family of Abraham, are created by the miraculous power of God. He says that, that God gave him this promise, that God gave Abraham this promise, that he would be the father of many nations. And the one who gave him the promise is the God, verse 17, who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence which did not exist. That is, the family of Abraham is creation ex nihilo. That, that this promise came and it was against hope, verse 18, because Abraham and Sarah, they were, against, they were beyond childbearing years. So there was no qualification or potential within their bodies to bring about the promise. The only way the promise came forward is by God's power, a power which comes from outside. See, Paul is concerned not simply to show that the mode of the people of God's relationship with God is by faith. He's also concerned to show that the means of God's people coming into existence and maintaining and, and staying in existence is God's miraculous power. Here's what that means, right? That's a bunch of theology to say, here's what that means. If you're a Christian, it is a miracle. God called you into existence. And the same call that called the world into existence and the galaxies into existence, that's the power that it took to make you a Christian. And that's the power that creates us as a new community together. And so, 
And so we, we, have to, we have to realize that, that if we are Christians, it is not for anything we are, anything we do. God did not do it based on any potential or worth or value in us, not keeping any norms or standards, but rather, but rather it was simply an act of grace, that the promise might rest on grace. There was a, a preacher named George Whitfield who's very famous, and in the 1800s, uh, I'm sorry, the 1700s, uh, he was preaching to some elite nobility. And when he was preaching in, to some elite nobility, there was this one uh, duchess who wrote to her friend who was having him preach, and she says, I can't believe that you listen to Whitfield's preaching. This is so offensive because what he's saying, if it's true, it means that like all of us are the same. And it's saying that I, who of of high and noble class, am the same as any uneducated, any like commoner, right? And she's like, this is so offensive. That, that Whitfield preaching the doctrine of justification by faith alone uh, rules out any sense of superiority. Exactly. Where is boasting? It is excluded. We all come to the foot of the cross together where there is no division, no distinction, no separation. And we are all given the miraculous gift of Jesus and his righteousness without regard to worth. And here's what that means. It means that justification by faith means that you can never, ever, ever feel superior to anyone else ever again. And justification by faith alone means that you can never, ever, ever, and you don't have to feel inferior to anyone else ever again. Because we all come to the table with the same ticket, and that ticket is Jesus. There are no comps, there are no, there are no, some got this handout, some got that handout, some worked for it, some didn't. No, we all got here through the same way. And that ticket is Jesus. And so we come around the table together, unified, looking to him and him alone for salvation. And this gives us the resources to live out the unity that God has given us. And to trust and hope against hope. That with a history as ugly and devastating as the one that I laid out. That God's power can even overcome that in his grace. I absolutely believe it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.